0: Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. And our text tonight is Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. But I'm going to go back and um, start reading at the very first text that we looked at two weeks ago, Isaiah 52, verse 13 and just read the six verses prior to the passage we're looking at, and then we'll read those three verses. So Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13. Remember that the words that we're about to read are a prophecy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They are a predictive prophecy given some 700 years before Christ came into this world and suffered and died on the cross, and yet they are such a clear prophecy of Christ that to read them today it almost sounds like we're reading from the gospels. So let's let's listen together to the Word of God, Isaiah fifty-two, thirteen through fifty-four verse six. The Lord speaking, and he says And rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And now we come to the text we'll look at tonight. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. of us all let's go to god in prayer father when we approach a text like this in the bible we we feel like the priests drawing near to the holy place and there is a part of us that says this is something that we don't even deserve to touch it's quite beyond us lord and yet, this is the very heart of the good news that you have ordered to be proclaimed in the world. And so, though, Lord, we, we know that as we, we look at this text, we stand on holy ground, we hear of the sufferings of our Savior, we hear of the cross of Christ, we hear of the most amazing and even perplexing truths ever revealed to man, we pray, Lord, that we would be enabled to come in the fear of God, that we would be enabled to come with a sense of reverence, that we would be enabled to come conscious of the great and weighty things that we're about to hear. Lord, it is your pleasure to bring treasures, eternal treasures to people in jars of clay. And so we pray, Father, that you would help uh, your frail, weak, and foolish servant who's about to preach this message. Lord, we pray that he would be enabled to preach it faithfully from your word, that he would not mingle his own opinions and ideas into your holy proclamation but, Father, that he would simply be your messenger. And we pray, Father, that you would take these words and the truths that they communicate, and, Lord, that they would not only come into our minds in a way that we could understand them, but, Father, that they would be planted deep in our hearts, that these truths, these gospel truths would change us, Lord, whether we are hearing this message for the very first time in our lives, Or, Lord, if this is the thousandth time that we have heard this message and these truths, we pray that you would transform us by the power of your grace, that the new creation would be planted and would blossom and bear fruit in our lives, and that you'd be glorified in us tonight. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God is righteous. God always does what is right. He always carries out what is just, what is fair, what is worthy, proper. He never fails to do righteousness. And that's not because God is somehow bound to keep a law outside of himself as if he's forced or compelled to do what is right. No, God, in a sense, is a law unto himself. His his own nature is righteousness. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And God's righteousness demands that sin be punished. God's righteousness requires that the Lord will glorify Himself in His justice against sinners. This message is testified in the very book from which we just read, in Isaiah 5, verses 15 and 16, speaking of the day of the Lord and and the judgment that is to come. It says, Man is humbled, and each one is brought low. And the eyes of the haughty, or the proud, are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Sometimes God exercises his justice in human history. And his justice strikes the sinner down even here and now. But certainly his justice will descend like a sword on judgment day. And sin will be punished. But my friends, here we find a paradox. Because God also promises mercy and forgiveness to his sinful people. Again, to quote another part of Isaiah, Isaiah 44 verses 22 and 23 says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud, and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and will be glorified in Israel." And so here we have, on the one hand, God says, I will glorify myself in punishing sinners as they deserve. But on the other hand, we have God saying, I will glorify myself in forgiving the sins of my sinful people. And this paradox might seem to set God's attributes of his mercy and his justice at odds with each other, as if God is in conflict with God. But God is simple in the sense that he is perfectly one within himself. He is not in conflict with himself. He is light, that is, righteousness, as it says in 1 John 1 5, and he is love. First John 4, 8. So God's not trapped in this paradox. Instead, God glorifies himself in this paradox. God has willed to show the glory of both his justice and his mercy through his Son. In Christ, we discover the paradox of peace through punishment. And what this text says to us in Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 6 is that God punished his servant for the peace of his people. In other words, Christ satisfied God's justice so that his mercy would flow unhindered to undeserving sinners. This is the message we find in Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 6. And this text, as we're going to see, it alternates back and forth, back and forth, between Christ's saving mercies and our sinful unworthiness. So let's take a look at this text and open it up to see how the very paradox presents to us the glory of our God. First of all, we see that Christ carried our sorrows, but we judged him. Christ carried our sorrows, but we judged him. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Now, this verse is closely connected to what we looked at last week. Three of the words in this verse, griefs, sorrows, and esteemed, also appear back in verse 3 when it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. In other words, Christ was viewed by most people as somebody who wasn't worthy of their attention. He was rejected by men. But now verse 4 says, Surely, in other words, it's introducing a contrast. It's saying, but in reality, if, if we look deeper, if we look at what's actually happening in Jesus Christ... We see that he was not a contemptible, despicable person. Instead, he was, and the first thing that we see in verse 4, is the servant burdened with griefs not his own. The servant burdened with griefs not his own. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The, the picture here is, is comparing pain, weakness, trouble, to to heavy loads that a servant carries. It's our sorrows heaped up on his back. The servant of the Lord has so completely identified with us, he has so completely taken up our cause and our case that he comes alongside of us and he lifts up our pain, our grief which did not properly belong to him, but he takes it on himself. Matthew saw these words as at least being partially fulfilled in the way that Jesus healed many sick and demon-oppressed people. He uh, quotes Isaiah 53, 4 in Matthew chapter 8, where we read in verses 16 to 17, "...that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons," And he he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And this fits with what we see in the Gospel of Matthew of the compassion of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ deeply cared for people. And he he worked to rescue them from the afflictions, the pains, the troubles that have come upon the human race as a consequence of man's fall into sin. All of Christ's earthly life, from the very incarnation to the burial of his broken body in the tomb, was a kind of taking our pain on himself. None of this belonged to Jesus. Jesus lived in eternal happiness without a single experience of pain or suffering as God the Son, one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But he took on human nature, So that he might take on our pain. And think about the pain of this world. All the terrible consequences that have come to us ever since our first father disobeyed God in the garden. Think about the pain of of rejection, the pain of illness, the pain of death. Think about broken hearts and broken bodies. Think about children crying out under parents who do not love them and mistreat them, and parents crying out because of children who will not listen to them and follow their wise advice. Think about nations crying out under governments that instead of seeking the public good, oppress the people and pillage them. Think about the tornadoes and the hurricanes, the famines, the earthquakes, the cancer, the the illnesses, the disabilities. All of these things were not part of the world that God created. They are the consequence of our fall away from God and his will. They are a foretaste. And indeed, the sounding trumpet of God's warning that judgment is coming. That hell will indeed be the final destiny of the enemies of God. And yet, here we see Jesus come not as a Lord to be served, but as a servant. Bowing down, putting his holy shoulder under our pain and lifting it up and carrying it. And how did we respond to this? How did people see Jesus as he came and so lovingly took up our pain? Well, this verse not only tells us of the servant burdened with griefs not his own, But it also tells us of the servant judged with guilt, not his own. The servant judged with guilt, not his own. Look at the second half of verse 4. It starts with a contrast. It says, yet we, or could be translated, but as for us, even though he was serving us, Even though he had come to help us, even though his whole life was one long act of compassion and mercy, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. It's almost as if God smashed him with a club or struck him with a terrible disease. We didn't view him as a savior. We didn't view Christ as one who had come to carry our burdens, but we judged him. We looked at his sufferings, and we decided that he must be a bad person because good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people is the logic of the world. And therefore, we considered Christ and his sufferings in his, his, the weakness that he experienced, ultimately the death upon the cross as one who was judged by God. Dear friends, we need to understand that as Jesus was dying on the cross, people were not looking at him thinking, wow, what a savior. They were looking at him thinking, wow, he must have done something really awful for God to send him to that. In the Old Testament itself, the law of God, teaches that a man who is executed and hung on a tree or a, 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 a piece of wood, a pole, or something like that, is dying under the curse of God. Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 to 23. And so by God's own law, the crucified is declared accursed. But how could anybody who knew Jesus think that about him? How could anybody who had watched him Heal the sick. Cast demons out of those who had been tormented for years. How could anybody who who saw his compassion, who watched him in his integrity and his righteousness and his purity, have ever thought that he was anything less than pure holiness? But we judged him. Not on the basis of his character, not on the basis of his conduct, but on the basis of his circumstances. Dear friends, we might say to ourselves, well, we would never have done that. If, if we'd been there, we would have stood with him. We would never have judged him this way. But is it not the case that we do the same thing with other people? Sometimes even the servants of God. Some, some bad thing happens in somebody's life. Some tragedy Something goes wrong in their families. One of the children goes astray, or they lose their job, or they, they have some illness, and people pray, but they 're not healed. And we start to think, "Well, you know, I kind of wondered about that guy. I always kind of thought that that woman there was something just not right there, and we judge them. We judge each other. we exercise the same kind of judgment because it comes naturally from our self-righteous hearts. As soon as we meet someone who is suffering in a way that we're not suffering, who is experiencing some hardship that we ourselves are not suffering from, we immediately say to ourselves, well, that's because I'm living right. And they must not be. Even if there's no evidence at all that we know of that they've actually done anything wrong. Dear friends, are we so sure that we would have been different from the crowds that looked upon Jesus and judged him? Are we so sure that we would not have esteemed him to be stricken, smitten by God and afflicted? I think we might be surprised where we would have found ourselves on that day. What does this mean? What does this mean when it says he carried our sorrows? We talk about Jesus carrying our sorrows. We're talking about Jesus suffering on the cross. Well, if he's not suffering because he's being punished for his sins, why is he suffering? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Why would the Son of God live such a hard life and come to such a cruel end? Isaiah answers that question in the next verse as he begins to open up the secret logic of God, the hidden, mysterious purpose of God, and we see in verse 5 that Christ suffered for our sins, but one peace for us. Christ suffered for our sins, but one peace for us. Look at verse 5. Of Isaiah 53, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Notice again how this passage keeps going back and forth. It, it started off with Christ's mercy to us, bearing our burdens, and then it, it jumps over to consider us and our self-righteousness and how judgmental we are, but now it shifts back again to consider Christ and his mercies and his saving work. And the first thing this verse says to us is that the substitute is punished for sins not his own. The substitute is punished for sins not his own. And you know what a substitute is. We we even use the word in sports, right? We do a substitution. There's a break in the play, and, and so there's a substitution. One player goes out, and he takes the place of another player who comes back and sits down on the bench, right? This is how God works to save us. By substitution, he sends Christ, and Christ takes our place. Look at the verse. He says, he was pierced because of our transgressions. He was crushed or broken. Why? Not because he had done anything wrong. Not because he deserved it. Not because he had displeased his father in the least bit. He always pleased his father. It was because of our transgressions. It was because of our iniquities. It was because we had broken God's law. And as a result, this horrific judgment falls upon God's son. The verbs here are very strong. It's a violent thing. It's, it's a pulverizing death. It's like Christ is being smashed to pieces. And in one sense, this is what is happening is he is being mistreated and tormented and killed by men. but Notice verse 10, which we'll look at, God willing, in a couple of weeks. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This was God. This was God. God sent his son to be crushed under the punishment of that was for our sins. This is dealing with the problem of our sin. This is making atonement for our sin by substitution. It is taking what we deserved as sinners and taking it off of us and putting it on him. Paul explains this in Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians 3.10, he says that the law of God pronounces its curse upon everyone who breaks the law. Cursed be everyone who does not keep everything in the law. And yet, Paul says in verse 13 of Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. But How? Not by by teaching us to live better lives so that we could somehow make up for our sins. Not by convincing the Father, hey, they're really not that bad. They didn't mean it. They're good at heart. No, no, nothing like that. Paul says, Christ redeemed us by the curse of the law by becoming a curse. For us. And then he quotes that same passage from Deuteronomy 21 I cited earlier For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is what sin deserves. This is what my sin deserves. This is what your sin deserves. It deserves the curse of Almighty God. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin is a vain and foolish attempt to cast off the rule of our creator, to take God off his throne and set ourselves up there. And it deserves to be severely punished. But Christ took it instead. Christ took it instead. This is the paradox of mercy and justice coming together. In Christ, we discover the paradox of peace through punishment. God punished his servant, Jesus Christ, for the peace of his people. The mercy of God required the wrath of God to fall on the Son of God. And John says, in 1 John four ten, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. He loved us. My friends, do you believe in the love of God? Do you believe in the love of God? Maybe you've seen some things that make it hard for you to believe in the love of God. Maybe you've experienced things that make it hard for you to believe in the love of God. But I say to you, look to Christ and him crucified for the sins of his people and you will see the love of God. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And the wonder of this Tremendous exchange is not only the substitute punished for sins not his own, but the substitute purchasing peace for his own. Because that is what he accomplished. That's what the second part of verse 5 is telling us. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The word chastisement sometimes in the Bible can refer to correction and discipline, but it can also refer to a severe physical beating as a punishment for sin. And as one commentator has said, chastisement of our peace means his punishment caused our peace. Do you see the connection here? Our sins caused his suffering, but his suffering caused us. Our peace. And peace here, my dear friends, is is not just a feeling of safety. We often use the word that way. I I just have a peace about this or something like that. Peace in the, the much bigger, stronger sense of the word means being at harmony with others. And in this case, it starts with being at harmony with God. Our sins set us up as God's enemies, and far worse, set him up as our enemy. Because as a just and righteous judge, he must punish sin. We were not at peace with God. But Christ's sufferings, because he took the just punishment upon himself and endured it, he also one for us, peace with God, so that if you are in Jesus Christ, you have peace with God. And God is at peace with you. And this brings healing to us. With his, the old translation says, with his stripes, with his wounds, we are healed. What a paradox. God's ways are so strange, aren't they? I mean, who would have thought, okay, this person needs healing, but he deserves the wounds that he has received. So how will he receive healing? This is how he'll receive healing. We will send someone who doesn't deserve any stripes or wounds. He will be wounded and by his wounds, the sinner will be healed. And yet that is God's way. That is God's way. And to be healed here or to be wounded, these are, these are pictures or figures of speech that Isaiah uses, like in chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, of the terrible consequences of sin. Christ's wounds have healed us of all the horrible effects of Adam's sin and our sins, everyone that we've ever committed. Now, some people claim this promise, with his wounds we are healed, as a promise of perfect health in this life. If we just have enough faith, perhaps you've encountered that. And they will say to you that, by the authority of the word of God, if you just trust in Jesus Christ and if you speak a word of faith, you will receive healing by the blood of Christ. And there's a sense in which they're right because Jesus did purchase complete and total healing for his people from all their sorrows, all their sicknesses. But they've got the timing wrong. Because God does not apply to us the full blessings of what his son has accomplished here and now. We know that, don't we? Don't we recognize that? Because if God did, if God gave to you everything that Jesus bought on the cross, you would be living in paradise right now. You wouldn't be here. My friends, absolutely. Do you want to claim that in Jesus you have healing? Claim it. It's there in the text. But understand that that full and perfect healing, not just of your body, but of your very soul, of every wound and sorrow, that healing will be applied to you if you belong to Jesus. When Jesus comes back and he brings us into his kingdom. It will not be applied now. So what does this exactly mean now, though? I mean, what, what does this mean? How does this apply with his wounds? We are healed. Well, we always interpret the Old Testament with the New Testament, right? The New Testament is God's commentary on the Old Testament. And this passage is quoted in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 to 25. So let me just read that to you, 1 Peter 2, 24 to 25, and I want you to listen to this and ask this question of the text. In what sense is the healing from Christ's wounds applied to people right now? This is what Peter says. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin, And live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Do you see it? It is healing. In fact, it's a more powerful and important healing than the healing of our body ever could be. It is the foundational healing that must take place if we're ever going to enter into that paradise of perfect health. But it is a healing of the soul. It is a healing of the heart. It is a healing of a person who has been prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. A healing that takes a sinner and turns him back to his God, a healing that starts on the inside so that we stop walking in the paths of sin that really are the source of all our sorrows, and we start walking in the paths of righteousness. Dear friends, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and God has given you repentance of your sins, you have been healed by the wounds of Christ and you can claim that future healing of all your sorrows on the great day when he comes. Have you, have you been healed? Have you been healed? Or are you still wandering from God. You might say, well, I'm not a bad person. I, I may not be particularly religious. Um, I'm not, certainly not fanatical, but I, I'm not a bad person. I, I treat other people at least as good as they treat me most of the time. And, no, no, listen. Listen, because this text once again shifts its focus away from Christ's saving mercies, and it comes back to us to show us what our sin really is. Look at verse 6 now as we consider our third point. We turned from God, but God put our sin on Christ. We turned from God, but God put our sin on Christ. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here we see, first of all, our sin that insists on our will. The picture here, of course, is of sheep wandering away from their shepherd, which reminds us that there is a place where we ought to be sheep should be with their shepherd and and it's it's only smart for sheep to be with their shepherd right i mean sheep are remarkably helpless creatures their shepherd is their protector Their shepherd is the one who leads them to the good places where they will find food. Their shepherd is the one who guides them and directs them because he cares for them. Their shepherd is the one who will fight for them and protect them against evil. But sheep are stupid. And they leave their shepherd. And dear friends, this is what sin is. Sin is is our insistence that we are not going to follow the one person in the universe that we can really trust to take care of us. Sin is our insistence that we will not be where we belong, that we will not walk on the paths that we ought to walk on, that we will not obey our Creator and listen to His Word. And surely there must be someone far wiser than God that we're going to listen to if we're going to turn away from God, right? There's got to be someone far more important than the living God if we're not going to listen to him, but instead we're going to follow that voice. And what voice is that? Look at verse 6. We have turned everyone to his own way. This is the horror of sin. We have forsaken God to follow ourselves. This is the essence of sin, my friends. We, we tend to think of sin as if it's some big, bad, scandalous behavior that everybody goes, oh, you know, I can't believe he did that. It's in all the newspapers or something like that. It's just some horrible thing, some crime, murder or robbery or something like that. My friends, don't you understand sin at its very heart is exalting self above God. That's all it is. You you don't need to be some kind of big criminal to be a horrendous sinner. All you have to do is live for yourself. And every time you live for yourself, every time you say, God, not thy will, but mine be done, you have committed treason against the king of the universe. You have set yourself up, a creature, against the creator, and you have violated the holy law of the universe and brought down justice against yourself. And my friends, in the context of what's being presented here, of the mercy of God, this statement about us and our sins as uh, Alec Mottier commented this has the force of saying with astonishment to think that he would do that for people like us you understand what this is saying we said to God God leave us alone we've got this covered we're going to live our own lives we're going to do it our way we said God we don't want you And we were on the road to absolute self-destruction. And God sent his son to take our place to suffer what we deserved after we had done that to him so that we could be saved. What is that? That, my friends, is love. That is love. Again, Isaiah draws attention to the substitution that has taken place when he says at the end of verse 6, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we have our sin that insists on our will, but we also see in verse 6 our sin that God set on our substitute. Our sin on him, the sinless one. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we would become the righteousness of God in him. This exchange, this exchange, this this placing of sin upon Christ, the Holy One, and How does that work? I mean, sin itself is not something you can... It's not a physical object that you can take and put on somebody else, right? Sin is an action. It's an an attitude. It's a a character quality. It's somebody's nature something like that. Jesus never became a sinner. He was always pure and holy. But the word that's translated iniquity here like many words that are related to sin, can refer to the guilt or liability to punishment that comes as a result of sin. And that can be transferred when you have one person who is willing to stand as the representative of others. And he said, I am their representative. I am here to take responsibility for what they have done and I will bear the consequences. And that's what Jesus did. God took the guilt and punishment that the sins of his people deserved and placed it upon his son. God crushed him under the weight of wrath and curse that our sins deserved so that... We would go free. So that we would go free. We it's difficult to even explain this. You know, we, we have a we have a concept for kind of a hero who who jumps in and saves somebody at At his own expense. You know, like like say a man who sees a, a truck barreling towards a child and he rushes and he pushes the child out of the way. The truck smashes into him, kills the man instead. We have a category for that. That makes sense to us and we celebrate people like that, but that's not really what's going on here. Because we're not some innocent child who's about to be crushed by some out of control truck. We are guilty sinners. The truck is the wrath of God, and it's aimed at us in all justice. It should hit us. It should crush us under God's judgment forever. This is what we deserve. And yet the one who deserves all blessing and honor and praise, he pushes us out of the way, and he takes the hit. That's what this is about. That's the wonder of what the substitution is, that our sins were put upon Christ. Jesus is the scapegoat. And we use the word scapegoat today to refer to anybody who gets blamed for something that somebody else did. But the expression itself comes out of the Bible, It comes out of an ancient Hebrew ritual that God ordained on the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus chapter 16, you can read about how after the priest sacrificed an animal to show that a substitute needed to die in the place of sinners. Well, we read this in Leviticus 16, 21 and 22. Referring to Aaron, the high priest, It says, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And listen now, listen for the echo of what what Isaiah is describing here. And he shall put them on the head of the goat. Do you see it there? God put Our iniquities on Christ. He shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. The idea is this transfer of guilt and punishment. So it's taken off of the people of God, it's put on the scapegoat, and the scapegoat carries it away, never to be seen again. This is the wonder of the good news, my friends. This is the wonder of the good news. If you belong to Jesus Christ, if you put your trust in him and him alone to save you, then what God has done for you, As he has taken all of the guilt of all of the horrible, evil things that you have thought and said and done. And he's put it on Jesus. And the scapegoat carried it away and it's gone. It's dealt with. It is fully paid for. As Jesus said as he was dying on the cross just before his last breaths. It is finished and you are free child of god believer in jesus christ if you are walking around with a load of guilt on your back for sins that you've confessed to the lord you're living under a lie because god has taken those sins and put them on jesus and you're free you're free Thus, we have promises like Micah 7:19, "You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea." You know, the average depth of the ocean is something like two to two and a half miles. So 10, 12,000 feet deep. There were no submersibles in ancient Israel. When something dropped into the depths of the sea, it was gone. My friends, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, He has fully and completely satisfied the justice of God for your sins, and they are cast into the heart of the sea. Yes, your Heavenly Father may have to deal with you over them in His loving fatherly discipline, because He wants you to grow but he will never count you guilty. He will never punish you and give you what you deserve for your sins. You are not guilty in his eyes because Jesus took the guilt away. Psalm 103, verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove his trans, our, our transgressions from us. He had to bear a terrible price for this. I hope you understand this, that, that when it says that God put on him the iniquity of us all, What it's saying there is there was much more happening on the cross than just the fact that Jesus was physically suffering. God placed upon him the wrath and curse that we, his people, deserved so that we wouldn't suffer it. Have you ever wondered why in the Garden of Gethsemane, why Jesus was in such agony even before he went to the cross? Even before he was arrested, he fell on the ground. He's crying out in prayer, God, if it was possible, may this cup pass from me. Because he was going to have to drink the cup of God's wrath. Have you ever wondered why Jesus on the cross, a man of such absolute faith, is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Had Jesus' faith failed? No. He was experiencing the forsakenness that sin deserves. The essence of the punishment that will one day cause the Lord to say to sinners, depart from me, you doers of iniquity, rejecting them forever. Jesus experienced that on the cross. And I just have to say that if if any one of you is still not believing in Jesus Christ, would you please, please, please cast your sins upon him even now? I say to you as a messenger of the living God, one who is proclaiming not my word, but his, an ambassador for Christ, I say to you, come to Jesus. Not with physical motion. You don't need to come down front, but come to Jesus in your heart. Trust in Jesus Christ, wholly and solely. Trust in Christ alone, because he has done Everything to remove your guilt, the wrath of God, the punishment that you deserve. He has done everything to save his people, everyone who will ever believe in him. Come to Christ. His love extends this offer to everyone who hears the gospel. It doesn't matter if you're young perhaps a child, you're still sinful. You still need Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're, you're in the prime of life. You're under the wrath of God and you need Christ. It doesn't matter if you're old and you have lived many years in rebellion against God, whether it's open rebellion or secret hypocrisy. If you come to Christ today, you will be accepted and forgiven and free. And for those of you who are Christians, for those of you who can honestly say that you have turned from your sins and trusted in Christ, then I say to you, you are free. Live like it. Live like it. Stop letting the devil convince you that that your sins are still hanging over your head. Because they're not. They were placed on his head. Stop acting like you need to make up for the bad things that you have done. Now, I'm not talking about making things right with other people. I understand that. Sometimes we need to make restitution, we certainly need to apologize and that sort of thing. But I'm talking about the most fundamental relationship that we have here, and that's with God. Stop acting like you have to somehow make up for your sins so that God will accept you. Whether it's the the little things that we do each day, or maybe you carry something around with you in your heart, something that you did well, maybe a long time ago, or maybe recently, but it's burdening you. And it just it's like a cloud that hangs over your head. Listen, child of God, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. Charles Spurgeon said, God has punished Christ. Why should he punish twice for one offense? Christ has died for all his people's sins. And if you are in the covenant, you are one of Christ's people. Damned you cannot be. Suffer for your sins you cannot. Until God can be unjust and demand two payments for one debt, he cannot destroy the soul for whom Jesus died. You are free, you are justified. And God is working in your life. He may send afflictions into your life. But that's not to make you acceptable to him. If you are a child of God, he does accept you. And you need to be repenting of your sins and turning back to him when you do wrong with the confidence that he does accept you. He does forgive you. For if we confess our sins, he is faithful and, what's the next word? Just. To forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. Wait a minute. How can God be just to forgive us our sins? Justice demands that our sins be punished. Yes. And justice was satisfied by the blood of Jesus. And so if you belong to Jesus and you're trusting in him, when you go to God and you confess your sins to God... His justice has already been satisfied, and he is just to forgive you. Isn't that amazing? God's justice becomes your friend. And I would also say to you believers, follow Christ in his ways. Follow Christ in his ways. This passage began in verse 4 by contrasting the way Jesus acted as a servant to bear the sufferings of others, versus the way we tend to act, which is to judge people. If you've been given the greatest mercy in the world, if you've been forgiven of all your sins and accepted by God, you need to learn how to show mercy to others. You need to learn how to be the kind of person who, when you see other people struggling under burdens maybe even burdens that they deserve. Your first impulse needs to become the impulse of Christ, not to judge those people, but to say, how can I come alongside you and help to carry your burden? You need to become a person who is driven by mercy. And not a mercy that neglects justice. Not a mercy that, that says it doesn't matter, that sin doesn't matter and righteousness doesn't matter. Remember, we, that's where we started from. This is righteousness and mercy. This is justice and mercy. But it's justice and mercy. And so my challenge for you, my friends, is to learn from the gospel both the mercy that God has shown to you but also to learn from the gospel the mercy that you need to show to others. And to put aside your judgmental ways, we we all have them, and instead to become a servant to bear other people's burdens. Let's pray. Lord, what love, what extraordinary love and mercy you have shown us in your Son. Open up our eyes to see it. Open up our heart to believe in it. And Lord, lead us forward in the path of peace. Give to us by faith, we pray, peace with you, peace in our consciences, And insofar as it's up to us, peace with others as we serve and carry each other's burdens. In Jesus' name, amen.